You are listening to MCC Geopod, the geopolitical podcast of the Maciej Corvinus Collegium, the largest talent management institute in Hungary. If you want to know more about our mission, please look up our English website at mcc.hu/en or check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter channels. For interesting articles and analysis of our professors and students, look up our knowledge base at korvinek.hu/en. All right, so welcome everybody. This is the MCC's Geopod uh, podcast. I am your host Solta Shitke, and uh, with me today on the Horvath Shanta, who is an assistant lecturer of the Karoli Gaspar University of the Reformed Church and a researcher at the MCC Geopolitical Center. Anga, thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you for the invitation. Um, uh, if I if I uh, know correctly, you you lived in Sweden, and uh, this uh, today's topic will be uh, Sweden. Um, can you tell me how how long did you uh, stay in Sweden? I lived there for approximately twenty five years, yeah, plus wow. or minus so, two or three years. So so it was, it was a long time and. And uh, first, I want to ask you about um, your experience in, in uh, Sweden. We know that uh, Sweden underwent uh, a huge uh, social change. Uh, the social landscape uh, changed a lot. And uh, can you tell me about your experience? Uh, what did you see about this? Well, on one hand, um, I have to underline already in the beginning that me and my family also arrived as migrants in the political turbulence in Transylvania at the end of the 80s. So basically, we also received um, refugee protection as political refugees coming from Transylvania. So I have really first-hand experience with the very liberal and kind and generous um, policies on the area of immigration when it comes to Sweden. Um, but during my, my time in Sweden, I could really witness with almost my own eyes how the landscape changed. We were obviously not the first uh, refugees to receive uh, protection status in Sweden, but um, there were many, many uh, persons coming from a variety of backgrounds, both within Europe. Um, it's enough only to think about, for instance, the Balkans in the beginning, beginning of the 90s. Um, but... It was later, around the 90s, that this type of uh, country of origin started to change because then Sweden would receive uh, mainly refugees coming from third countries, um, including, for instance, uh, Iraq, uh, Iran. Iran already started in, uh, after 79, after the revolution, um, but from uh, North Africa and several countries of the Middle East, and also, of course, uh, Somalia as one of the main countries of origin. And this was really uh, when the, the, I wouldn't say that the whole landscape, but the problems that would follow in the steps of immigration would become visible. Because many of the persons who would be granted uh, refugee protection, they came from countries who had a very different culture, who had a very different religion, who had a very different view on how society would function, who would govern society, uh, what norms would be the ones that persons should live their lives accordingly to, uh, whether this be the laws of the state or whether these be the laws of the religion in particular. Uh, plus, many persons came from countries um, that, that were almost completely illiterate. And coming from this background um, and entering a very liberal democracy based on a very high amount of information and literacy skills and obviously digital skills uh, were 
all factors that would have a very large impact on the success of integration. And uh, this this integration problem that uh, led to to the higher number of crime. What do you think? This uh, is uh, mainly the problem of uh, the people who immigrated Sweden, their different culture, or is this uh, more to blame the the Swedish government who couldn't handle this this uh, situation? Well, I believe that uh, the intent of the Swedish government and the Swedish immigration policies has always been very kind and very good and a bit naive in a sense that it's not sufficient to grant large number of persons refugee protection if you do not, do not have the necessary means to actually integrate all these persons. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the persons who were granted refugee status, they came from war-torn areas, uh, probably had several war traumas uh, and It's, it, it doesn't make any sense to commence uh, already with, for instance, language courses. But first, you have to make sure that these persons ref, uh, receive psychological support. They receive uh, some sort of therapy to help them to get over the different traumas regarding their lives and their families and things that happened to them on the way to, to Sweden. Um, and of course, considering the very large numbers in some years, um, approximately 90,000 or 100,000 or I think the record years were the years uh, of the obviously the migrant crisis uh, hitting the entire Europe in 2015 and 2016 where more than 160,000 persons entered Sweden which is basically a middle-sized city um, and I don't believe that any country possesses all the necessary means in terms of uh, funding and in terms of expertise to actually have persons on the ground, making sure that these persons receive all necessary help uh, to then eventually start learning the language and starting to learn how Swedish society functions. So on one hand, um, yes, there was a very large political will to receive large numbers But uh, the handling of these very large persons or the large numbers on the ground did not quite correlate. Uh, and like you mentioned, yes, we see uh, many of the many of the uh, results of these bad integration policies uh, today in form of uh, gang-related violence, um, extremists growing, uh, the growth of uh, jihadist milieus in Sweden, and of course uh, disintegration, which may be either a voluntary segregation, meaning that um, immigrants are in many cases likely to move <laughs> to live together with persons coming from the same country, or an involuntary, uh, meaning that maybe they would like to move away from that particular uh, low-income immigrant majority suburb, but they don't have the means and they don't have any chance to, to do so. So they're basically stuck in that segregation. And um, you mentioned the, the, the help of these uh, immigrants who arrive in Sweden, but uh, well, this was some time ago and, and in Sweden... Um, I'm sure that there are some generations of uh, the children of immigrants who, who were already born there and know the language. But um, as to my knowledge, uh, there's some problem with the second or even third generation immigrants in, in Sweden. So um, can can the, the foremost uh, um, help of these immigrants with psychological help 
prevent these uh, generational problems or is this more like uh, an educational system uh, kind of problem or uh, what do you think about this? Well, I think that we should uh, separate these two issues. On one hand, uh, when I mentioned the psychological help, I was specifically referring to the refugees who came from uh, war-torn countries, who came from, uh, for instance, many of the persons coming from Syria or many of the persons uh, fleeing from the Shah uh, in Iran uh, at the end of the 70s, many of the persons uh, fleeing from al-Shabaab in Somalia. So basically people who have experiences from war, they are the ones who should receive this type of help. When it comes to the second and third gen generation immigrants, uh, that is a completely different uh, chapter. And I would say that these uh, problems, when it comes to especially the second and third generation of Muslim youth, they are not typical for Sweden, but they are rather typical for the entire Western Europe. Uh, I see the same issues among the second and third generation immigrants uh, of, of Muslim parents or Muslim immigrants in France, in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Germany. Denmark, Sweden, and so on and so forth. And this is a really interesting category. Uh, this is also my research topic for my PhD uh, studies. That, uh, that, that the question is why, why this group is so vulnerable when it comes to radicalization and recruitment by uh, jihadist organizations, such as, for instance, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, who have particularly been targeting this vulnerable group. And the way I see it is that um, the members of this delimited group, they are sort of stuck in a limbo between two worlds. On one hand, they have the world of their parents. Uh, they may speak or may not speak the language of the parents. Um, and and may, they have not even been in their country of origin. But they know that it exists and they know that this is part of their identity, but maybe they are not able to fully embrace it. On the other hand, there is obviously the culture and the religion or non-religion of the whole society, the language of the whole society um, that may have very different uh, values on how to live, uh, who you can engage with, who you can marry, uh, what type of activities you can participate in as a girl, for instance. And I see that many, many members of many persons belonging to the second and third generation, they are not able to fully uh, find the balance between these two worlds. And honestly, I don't see that there are any, um, any measures from the whole societies helping these youngsters to cope with both identities. Identity is, um, in psychological research, something that is very, very important to have a stable life, to have a stable existence. Uh, and today, of course, identity can be many things, many different components, but uh, there has to be some sort of balance between these different components for the person to feel uh, stable. And I see that this is the main problem, that there is really no identity uh, or that there is no good forces in the society teaching these youngsters that actually they can be both if they want to. They can be, for instance, uh, Somalis living in a liberal and secular country, or they can be uh, Swedish if they, for instance, visit their relatives in Mogadishu. So there are no, no, no protocols or there are no guidebooks. And I don't see that there are any positive or not too many positive forces who would actually uh, teach these kids uh, how to embrace uh, maybe the best of all worlds. So uh, the solution for uh, this 
dual identity or this identity crisis could be education or social work or uh, what's the responsibility of the state here? Well, um, in my experience, there, um, there are some uh, civil society organizations who work with these issues who are um, from a migrant origin themselves, who can really understand uh, the problem that these uh, youngsters face in, in their old days. Um, I have seen, for instance, the case of where uh, imams have been a part of the solution in the case of where the imams themselves have lived in the specific country for maybe a decade or more decades. But I have also seen many cases where the imams have been actually a really big part of the problem, since in many cases we know that uh, the imams are... I'm sorry for sorry for the hardly word, but they are imported. They are they are sent by the funding state. Um, for instance, Saudi Arabia in many cases, and of course, an imam coming from Saudi Arabia entering a liberal and secular country like Sweden may not uh, be familiar with the type of problems that a second or third generation immigrant may face, and hence may not be the best advisor in in questions regarding how to live one's life. So yes, I see that on one hand, there are many uh, civil organizations who try to help, um, but but I do lack um, a recognition from the state or the municipality to realize that this actually is a problem. And of course, one solution would be to try to minimize the volumes of immigrants coming from the very same background uh, that continue to provide a supply to these already existing segregated suburbs and first deal with those who are already in the country that we are talking about and make sure that we first can mitigate the problems before maybe 90 or 100,000 new ones arrive. Because these are the statistics that, that we see still every year. And uh, well, this problem seemingly bothers the, the Swedish uh, residents, the, the population as well, because uh, we can see that in, in September there was a, a general election when after a long time of, of uh, left-wing uh, government, the, the right-wing parties had won. Uh, so this uh, could be, could this be the, the new era for, for migration policy and the social policy of, of Sweden? Uh, maybe yes and maybe not. But what, what one has to understand about Swedish society and Swedish culture is that um, it's very, very consensus-based. And this is something that uh, is prevalent on a lot of different levels. We see it on the political level, we see it on the societal level, we see it on the professional level, working, working together. It's a really, really strongly consensus-oriented uh, culture. And immigration has been a big taboo for many years. Uh, there is even a really interesting uh, PhD dissertation on the topic um, that is maybe 10 or 15 years old, but it examines exactly why this culture of political correctness could develop in Sweden. And the author's uh, theory is that uh, the social democrats who governed for around 80 years during the past century, uh, the way they shaped the term multiculturalism is in a way that it cannot be criticized by anyone or by anything, or even the smallest, although legitimate, criticism of this term multiculturalism or the phenomenon uh, is considered to be racist and xenophobic, and hence is, is something that um, would not be taken into the general debate. And in this uh, dissertation, really interestingly, the author 
derives how uh, the managing the, the managing of this term multiculturalism has actually led to the fact that nobody dares to talk about uh, taboos and and really big issues that are connected to migration. Because uh, reading the newspapers, both uh, the Swedish as well as the international newspapers, uh, is is almost uh, filled daily uh, with news on gang-related violence, on uh, on uh, other types of violence and crime related to immigration and the segregation and the disintegration. So for many, many years, the problems have been visible, but... Uh, the mainstream parties have completely neglected to talk about this issue. And I see. I think that the results from this year's general election is, is a really clear illustration of this. Uh, now, one could really bluntly summarize it with the fact that reality has caught up with all the political parties as well as with the voters. Um, and I'm really curious to see whether there actually will be um, de facto changes when it comes to immigration policies. Because when the when the right wing parties uh, were governing 12 years ago and 16 years ago, uh, it was the moderate party who had uh, the migration minister who, at one occasion, uh, said something like, "We need to." look over the volumes of irregular migrants entering Sweden, which was really, really, um, it was a very sensitive topic, obviously, but it was a very careful statement. And even uh, considering how careful this statement was, there was uh, massive criticism uh, targeting this minister from a variety of of directions. So actually the right-wing parties, of course, saw these problems already 12 or 16 years ago, but they were themselves then again part of the problem by not doing anything. So that was why I'm wondering why now when the same party is the party that gives the prime minister, whether they will actually do anything concrete to mitigate the situation. Well, uh, we will see about it because uh, uh, I think uh, the the moderate party and the the Swedish Democrat Party, the the one of the main principle of their uh, campaign was was the tougher stance on migration. So it wasn't really a taboo uh, in this campaign season. Well, it's it? not anymore. Not not anymore. But now now was the first time that these parties were actually uh, daring to talk about it. Obviously, the Sweden Democrats they have been talking about the the flaws and the failures of Swedish migration policy for many many years. Uh, already before two thousand and ten, that was the first uh, general election to the Swedish Parliament, the Riksdag, when they entered for the first time. And already then, their flagship was basically to restructure migration policy completely. Uh, now the situation is still quite sensitive, which we will also see, I think, reflected in the new government. And the fact that uh, despite the Sweden Democrats being the largest opposition party and the second largest political party of all the parties, they will not have any positions in the government because cooperation with them still counts as something highly sensitive and a bit of a taboo. Uh, but of course, since they are the biggest party on the right wing side, obviously they need the political influence that would illustrate this type of uh, largeness that they received during the past uh, elections. So what we see now is that they get um, they get important and influential positions, such as, for instance, um, chairing the Committee for Justice Affairs in the Swedish Riksdag. 
Uh, there are some rumors about that one of the high-ranking party members of the Sweden Democrats will uh, lead the Swedish delegation to the OSCE. And also the deputy speaker of the Swedish Riksdag comes from this very party. So yes, they have uh, and they will probably get many influential positions. Uh, but it is not that likely that they will get any ministerial posts. And um, well, as of today, uh, the 12th of, of October, uh, there is still not uh, an agreement between the, the right-wing parties to form the, the coalition. But for a moment, let's suppose that uh, this government, uh, this uh, coalition comes uh, into life. And uh, what this would mean to, to the politics of the Nordic region and uh, maybe to Europe, because uh, you've mentioned uh, all the Western countries who uh, fight with the same problems as, as Sweden did uh, uh, or does right now, could this uh, change start uh, to catch up in, in, in uh, Western countries as well? Well, uh, when it comes to the level of uh, professionals, I already saw that this cooperation regarding issues on how to prevent uh, violent extremism and how to prevent especially violence promoting Islamism, on the level of professionals, this already worked during the past governments as well. On the political level, um, I, I, I will not be able to tell you um, how European cooperation would uh, would would change, uh, since I, I still believe that, in the view of uh, many political parties, the Sweden Democrats are still not quite uh, quite they are not considered to be quite clean party when it comes to the to entering the big hall rooms of political debates and political discussions. Uh, but this is a reality that that obviously not only the European Union but also the countries of the Nordic cooperation will have to will have to face. And uh, as for my last uh, quick question, uh, if we suppose that uh, this right-wing uh, government uh, comes into fruition, uh, and you have also mentioned uh, the Middle Eastern countries uh, from Islam uh, who who try to gain influence by, by sending uh, preachers, imams uh, to, to Sweden. Could this be a, a point of, of, uh, of battle between uh, the, the Islamic uh, influence in the region and the right-wing government? Uh, I'm not sure on the government level, since, um, since these issues are mainly something that occur on, on a different level. Uh, on one hand, yes, there could be a political debate. And to mention a concrete example from the general elections that we just talked about, uh, there was a fairly new party in this general election called Nuance in Swedish, which means nuance, the same thing in English, which is a party that is led by a Turkish, a Turkish person who used to be a member of a, another Swedish party, the Centre Party. Uh, that used to belong to the right wing, but then eventually started to tend more towards the left side because they really, really wanted to exclude the Sweden Democrats and they really did not want to cooperate with the Sweden Democrats. And this, um, the leader of this Nuance party is interesting because uh, he was kicked out of the center party because he had uh, alleged connections to the Turkish Grey Wolves. Uh, which is the militant youth wing of Turkey's ultra-nationalist uh, MHP. And the association with the Grey Wolves is not something that is new to this person and the Swedish political landscape as such, because there has been 
and actually a former minister of Turkish origin, who was the Minister for Housing Affairs, a member of the Swedish Green Party, uh, who eventually was also kicked out because his alleged membership in, in this party. So yes, we see that um, there are certain areas that might uh, turn into larger conflicts, such as, for instance, uh, association with uh, this this uh, this extremist uh, party in Turkey, and this party uh, being yet again another example of how, how Erdogan is trying to increase his uh, influence in Europe. But uh, it is less likely that we will see these political debates between either Sweden and the Muslim world um, in an open agenda, or that we will actually be able to read about what is happening behind the closed doors in the newspaper. Well, I don't uh, know if I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, I'm afraid uh, our time is up. So thank you so much for this discussion. And thank uh, you. for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this MCC Geopod episode. For further media content, please look up our English website at mcc.hu en or look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to read more by our professors and students, check out our knowledge base at korvinek.hu en.